You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hello, my Fresh Hellions. Welcome to Hell. It's Fresh Hell, though, so if you want stale hell, you have to go and listen to last week's episode. (laughs) That's an excellent point. I'm Annie, the American. And I'm Johanna, the Austrian. And if this is your first time listening, we're both into true crime. And we're modern pen pals, which means we have never met in person. Yeah, that's right. We're internet friends. And of course, the way all of this works is we take turns choosing topics. And if we both know it, we'll cover it together like we did last week with King Tut. But today, when I mentioned I really wanted to cover this case, you said you didn't know it. So I'm here to tell you all about it. And I'm really looking forward to hear it because I have never heard about it before you even mentioned the name. I don't know, it wasn't a thing here in Europe or maybe it was in, I don't know, in the UK, but definitely not in German speaking countries. So what kind of case is this? This is definitely a mystery. Today, I'm going to tell you about the deaths of Max Shacknai and Rebecca Zahau. This is the case that I'll tell people about when they ask, like, I get asked a lot, like, why why are you so into true crime? Like, why, why is this a thing with you? I'll tell them about this case and say, you know, well, what do you think? And then for weeks, they'll be texting me saying, well, what about this? And what about that? So <laughs> I promised my friend Will I'd cover it. I really hope you'll find it as, as fascinating as I do. I have to say that when I went into researching this case to do our podcast, I really believed one thing, one theory. But once I finished my research, I don't know, I'm a lot less sure than I once was. Listeners, if you know the Rebecca Zahau case and you think you're absolutely sure what happened to her, please join our Facebook group and let me know. Let us know. Did your thoughts change after you heard our episode? You also told me there's a new television program about it, a documentary. Is there? Did I remember that right? Yep, that's right. I had watched and saved an old episode of Marsha Clark Investigates, which I think it's on A&E, and I I actually really like it. But there's a brand new series on the Oxygen channel about this case. It features investigative reporter Billy Jensen and former prosecutor Lonnie Coombs. I think the name of it is Death at the Mansion, Rebecca's a How. And I've seen uh, the first two episodes at the time of recording. So there were a lot of... uh, forensic heavy hitters on both of these programs. Anne Rule also wrote about this case, and I'll link to that book in my sources as well. It was a sort of a compilation book of cases, and it was good. So before we begin, are there any warnings for our listeners? Yeah, we have two big warnings today. We're going to be discussing the accidental death of a child, and we're going to be getting into some depth on suicide and methods of hanging uh, in, in some detail. So really, please keep that in mind. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to cover all of this in one episode, so we'll see how we do on time. Yeah, if these are problem topics for you, give this one a pass. Okay, that sounds like a fresh hell of a case. I'm ready. Tell me everything. Okay, at the center of our story is a house, the historic oceanfront Spreckles Mansion on Coronado Island, just outside San Diego. It was originally built in 1908 by John D. Spreckles, who also owned the stunning Hotel del Coronado. 
sidebar, the Hotel Del Coronado is amazing, and it's on my bucket list of hotels I want to stay in. But every time I've looked at pricing, it's around $500 a night. And while the included Pilates classes would certainly appeal to someone, I'm not sure they're enough of a bonus for me to live on ramen for a year to spend a week there. <laughs> it is gorgeous, though, and probably very, very haunted, but in like an appealing way. Uh, yet, funny story, Coronado is on my bucket list, too, because they filmed Some Like It Hot there. And I was the biggest Marilyn Monroe fan when I was a teenager. You should ask my parents because my <laughs> room had a Marilyn Monroe wallpaper and I had a sun chair and lamps and pictures and my door had a life-size Marilyn on it. And I had the movies and the books, so the whole deal. And keep in mind, that was in the late 80s, early 90s in Austria. And there was no eBay and no Wish and no Amazon. And it was <laughs> not easy to collect all those things. So yes, please, we should go there. Uh, you said it's haunted too. And we could do an episode there, you know, like the believer and the skeptic. Yes, yes, let's do that. I'm completely serious let's plan that because it's amazing right you guys need to look at this hotel it's gorgeous and i promise we'll get back to our story but you know how much i love historic buildings and so i also need to tell you that there are actually two spreckles mansions the other one is in san francisco and novelist danielle Steele owns it she planted enormous privacy hedges and apparently all her neighbors hate her because of the hedges Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's a big part of it. But she also apparently has bought like, I don't understand how this works, but I read that she's bought 25 parking spaces in the neighborhood so that her friends can park when they come to her house for parties. And then the people who actually live around the neighborhood can't find anywhere to park. Yeah, that would do it for me. She sounds super lovely. And here I am hating my new neighbors for way less. <laughs> right? We got super lucky in the neighbor department here. But I will post a link or two so you can check out Danielle Steele's Spreckles Mansion. But our Spreckles Mansion is the Coronado one. And it is just down the street from that famous Hotel Del Coronado. When this home was built, Victorian homes were all the rage. And why wouldn't they be? They're amazing. But this house is a blend of Italian Renaissance revival and Beaux Arts architecture. And it was a really dramatic contrast to the other homes in the area. It sounds modern, but it's not. It's lovely. And it's big, over 12,000 square feet with 27 rooms, including 10 bedrooms, 11 bathrooms, five fireplaces, and a private courtyard with two guest apartments over the four car garage and then a separate, like, three bedroom, three bathroom guest house. So, It's a mansion. In 2007, Jonah Shacknai purchased the home for just under $13 million, and he bought it as a vacation home and a bit of a fixer-upper. It was a little bit sad when he purchased this once very grand home, and the main issue was just... I mean, really just a sea of deep pile wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and the loss of some of the home's original charm. But in his defense, Jonah had been negotiating with the city to make renovations to the historic property. And you know, those cool California breezes coming off the ocean still made it a really wonderful getaway during the hot summer months when Arizona, where Jonah lived the rest of the year, is like the surface of the fucking sun. 13 millions. Yeah, that's neat. That's a steep price. And honestly, <laughs> honestly, I would rather buy the Soden house for 4.7 million. But I guess 13 million for a vacation home is nothing out of the ordinary for our buddy Jonah over here. <laughs> yeah, the Soden house, the one from I Am The Night, the hotel house. Yes, I know a lot of people find it scary, but I think it's beautiful. I mean, it's definitely ominous, but beautiful. Uh, no, it's too creepy for me. I'd buy the Amityville house before I bought the Soden house. <laughs> 
But yeah, even if I won the lottery, I couldn't justify spending that much money on a house either. But you're right. Spending $13 million on a second home with a serious wall-to-wall carpeting problem was not an issue for Jonah. He was a very successful businessman. He was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, and they made the cosmetic filler Restylane. So, you know, they were making that money. They were also based in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is where his more palatial year-round home is. All right, so I know it's really wrong, but I kind of, I want to see photos of his year-round home, like if this was his second house, but I did not Google them because it felt stalkery. It made me feel like a creep. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm fascinated by how people with that much money live. I don't know. I think it's just growing up in the 80s with Robin Leach showing me all the champagne wishes and caviar dreams, but I'm I'm all right with cavo wishes and cheese and cracker dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Yeah, if you're a millennial, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was like the original Cribs. Wait, um, are they too young for Cribs? I feel old. I'm pretty sure Cribs and Pimp My Ride are only watched sarcastically by them nowadays. Oh, probably. I'm happy to say that if you want to check them out, you can see loads of photos of the Spreckles Mansion. And seriously, it's gorgeous, especially now. It's been completely renovated and they added a pool and spa. And it's currently on the market again and can be yours for the tidy sum of $16.9 million. I'll post a link to the listing because it's some serious house porn. Yeah, I know that's your favorite kind of porn, just looking at all the details of antique homes. It really is. It's my favorite. And they did an exceptional job with the photographs. Anyhow, when Jonah bought this house, he was still married to Dina Romano, his second wife. His first marriage had also ended in divorce and produced two children who were teenagers when our story takes place. Jonah and Dina had a gorgeous little boy. Maxfield Aaron Shacknai, who they called Maxie, was born on June 7th, 2005. But Jonah and Dina Shacknai seemed to have had a very volatile relationship and they divorced in 2008 and shared custody of their son. Dina also has homes in both Scottsdale and Coronado so they'd all travel at the same time so Max always had his parents around him. I mean money definitely makes some things easier doesn't it? Oh definitely but to be fair money also gives you a whole new set of problems like you know will my suitcases match the carpet of my third home or should I better order custom made Louis Vuitton set? No (laughs) I'm just kidding to be fair I wouldn't want to trade with those people who own that kind of money because I just want a comfortable life but still simple enough. Yeah, same, same. I think if you're already generally happy, a little extra money won't hurt, you know. Sometime in 2008, Jonah went to an eye appointment in Scottsdale where he met and was just immediately captivated by the surgical tech working there. A woman 20 years younger than him and her name was Rebecca, I think it's Nalepa. And she was married, but I think she was already separated when she met Jonah and he was already divorced. Rebecca's maiden name was Zahao, and her family were immigrants from Myanmar. More specifically, she was Chin, and that's one of the more persecuted peoples because the missionaries found them a while ago, and now they're predominantly Christian, usually Protestant. Both her grandfather and her father were apparently freedom fighters who opposed the military regime's systematic ethnic cleansing through forced labor, forced migration, rape, and religious persecution. It was bad. Her childhood seems to have been one of just continual upheaval. And at some point in her childhood, it seems like her father was a political prisoner for, I believe it was six years. Her family fled to Nepal and her father was granted political asylum in Germany before most of the family ended up settling 
settling in Missouri. She has several siblings, including an older sister, Mary, who is, she's only like 15 or 16 months older than her, and they're really close. She also has a younger sister named Snow M, who lives in Germany, and another sister who is much younger than her, 13-year-old Zena, at this time. She was very well educated, and she spoke like five or six languages fluently. In 2002, when she was 23, Rebecca married Neil Nalepa. Now, according to Becky's sister Mary, they met when Becky was in her late teens. The two of them were attending the Cavalry Chapel Bible College in Austria. I sent that to you last week. Do you know it? No, but as you asked me the other day, I looked it up and apparently it is in a beautiful castle in Carinthia at the Milstetter See. That's a beautiful place. I can definitely understand that this is a place where you can get into a kind of a romantic mood. I really need to visit you. Well, unfortunately, it was apparently not a great match. In the Anne Rule book, her ex-husband, he's not a bad guy, but he comes across as somebody who was trying to find himself and kind of traveling all over the country for jobs. So every time Rebecca would settle somewhere and have a job, he'd get fired or he'd want to try a new career in some other part of the country or he'd want to go back to school. They'd move again. And even at one point, I think she had purchased a house and he was still trying to move them somewhere else. So she just never had any stability with him. They separated not that long after they were married. And then I think they did this thing where they were on again, then they'd separate again. And then I think she really wanted to make it work, but ultimately it was a bad match. And they divorced in February 2011, which isn't too much of a surprise because she began dating Jonah in 2008. It's interesting to note that in August 2009, uh, Rebecca Zahau was arrested for shoplifting after stealing about $1,000 worth of jewelry from a Macy's in Phoenix, Arizona. And this to me is just very bizarre. Your boyfriend is a billionaire and you're stealing from Macy's? So she pled guilty, paid a fine, and she had to go to some kind of shoplifting class. I don't know how many people in her family knew that this had happened. I mean, yeah, fair enough, but um, shoplifting very often is a sign of a psychological issue rather than just being about the item you steal. Yeah, exactly. So in the Anne Rule book, it kind of seemed like maybe she was just having a really hard time separating from her ex and that it was just a very stressful time. But I think it's worth mentioning just because it really does seem so out of character for her. And she claimed that she had been distracted by a shocking phone call. And that's why she absentmindedly had dropped things that she had been carrying in her hands into her shopping bags. I mean, it's possible. I could see that maybe happening. It actually happened to me once. I put something in my pocket in a shop at fully in, at a grocery store, of all things. I went in for like one thing and walked out with five. And I tucked one in my pocket, fully intending to take it out and pay for it, and then forgot. And then like a month later, I found a jar of spices in my coat pocket. And I just felt <laughs> such an asshole when I went back and apologized and paid for it. They kind of laughed and looked at me like I was insane. But they did thank me. So... Anyway, but yeah, so Rebecca got off with just a slap on the wrist. She paid like 500 bucks in court costs and she went to her shoplifting diversion course and she had been working as a surgical technician at this eye surgery center. But in December 2010, she quit her job so that she was able to spend more time with Jonah and his kids, especially Max. I mean, one upside to being in a relationship with a billionaire is that freedom to do what you want. And I can't blame her for wanting to spend more time on the coast. So now it's around Memorial Day, May 2011, and Jonah and Rebecca moved to the Spreckles Mansion for the summer. I guess there had been some friction with Jonah's older teenage kids. Which is expected when their dad has a much younger girlfriend. Uh, my parents are divorced, and I get that feeling, to be honest. Yeah. 
I mean, I get that too, but it does seem like they could be pretty mean to her sometimes. And some of her journal entries sort of seem to back up and imply that Jonah, he didn't always back her up when his older kids crossed a line. Now, to be fair, I think the kids were like 13 or 14 at the time, and that's arguably just the worst age to be a teenage girl. So, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm blaming his older kids for anything here, but it was just a hard situation for everybody. But fortunately, Rebecca got along really well with Max. She absolutely loved him and would play with him and read to him. It just seems like they had a very healthy, happy, close relationship. He's just turned six years old. He's bright, funny, healthy, and just super adorable. Rebecca also had a Weimaraner dog named Ocean. You know, all dogs are beautiful, yes, but I are. think they are the most beautiful and majestic dogs ever. I love them. They're like silver ghosts, aren't they? Yeah. They're so pretty. My yes. uncle used to have one. Oh, I know. They're, they're beautiful dogs. My uncle had one named Petey, and he was a really good boy. I like Weimaraners. So on July 10th, Rebecca picks up her 13-year-old sister, Zena, who is going to spend a few weeks visiting from Missouri. Oh, that's nice. So it seems Jonah is close to her family? Yeah, it really does seem so. I think that Zena was raised by Rebecca's sister, Mary, and her husband, um, just because I think her parents had her when they were, I think she was a surprise when they were older. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like Rebecca's family is close to Jonah, or at least there's no friction. You know, it seems like her family are always welcome. And while Jonah was twice divorced, it seems like he took his role as a father very seriously and he obviously loves his kids and wants them in his life i want to say you don't get the impression or at least i didn't get the impression that rebecca was in the relationship because he had money you know what i mean all right so now things start to get a little bit more serious on july 11th 2011 Zena has been in town for a day and that morning jonah takes his two older kids who had been visiting they'd been staying with them for a couple of weeks and it was time for them to go to the airport for their flight back home to their mother in arizona when he returns home he runs to the gym at the hotel del coronado which is less than five minutes away for a nice workout I mean, that guy is a billionaire with a huge, huge mansion and he needs to go to a hotel gym. I think that's so weird. Am I the only one who thinks that's weird? I think that's weird. The house now, so like after all this happened, he sold the house and now yeah. the house has a, like a dedicated gym in it. Yeah, I don't know. He was a member. There's like a private shishi gym. Yeah, but I mean, if I pay $13 million for a house. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. So Max was home with Rebecca and her younger sister Zena when tragedy struck. Rebecca's in the bathroom under the stairs while her sister Zena was somewhere else in the mansion upstairs taking a shower. Max had last been seen in the kitchen and Rebecca steps into the bathroom for five or ten minutes when suddenly she just hears a loud crash. Rebecca rushes out and says she finds Max laying in the foyer by the stairs on the floor, seriously injured and not breathing. Nearby are a few scattered soccer balls and his razor scooter, which was on top of his leg. She said it appeared he had fallen off the mansion's second floor railing and grabbed the chandelier during his fall, as parts of the chandelier were also on the ground next to him. The first officer on the scene described Rebecca as kneeling beside Max in a state of shock. She said that when she found Max, he was conscious and said one word to her, Ocean. Remember, Ocean is the name of Rebecca's Weimaraner. And later on, Rebecca was allegedly overheard saying to her sister, Dina is going to kill me. Okay, so Dina is Max's mother. And let me guess, she didn't love her ex-husband's much younger girlfriend? Yeah, exactly. And honestly, it's hard to know what that relationship was really like, but my best guess from what I've seen is that it was civil, but not warm. Civil, but frosty. 
I mean, that's good enough, to be fair. Yeah, no, I agree. In Anne Rule's book, it seems like Dina did know about the shoplifting issue, so she had some understandable concerns. But I can imagine that no mother is going to be thrilled when there's a stepmother figure in the picture. I mean, even if that person is Mary freaking Poppins, right? You're going to be a little bit unhappy about it. It's just hard on everyone. But back to the day of Max's accident. So he's had a really terrible fall. Zena called 911. And Rebecca's trying to help Max, who, as I said, was not breathing. In the oxygen special, they played the 911 call, which I had not heard before. And it is heartbreaking. When the operator initially says, you know, 911, what's your emergency? There's some silence before Zena starts to speak. And you can hear Rebecca. Rebecca sobbing and saying, he's dead, he's dead. It's devastating. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. I don't believe for a moment that her anguish in that call isn't real. She really loved that boy. So Rebecca then called Jonah. Uh, She was just hysterical and he couldn't understand anything she was saying, but he just ran home as fast as he could. He arrived in time to see his son before they brought him out to the ambulance, and so Jonah follows behind. They first take uh, Max to the local hospital, but when they realize how critically he's injured, he's taken to Grady Children's Hospital in San Diego. There it was found that he had injuries that supported the idea that he'd had a very bad fall and landed head first as well as face first. So what happened is when his head hit the floor, the force of the fall caused skull fractures in the front of his head, and then his head snapped back, which hyperextended his neck and caused a spinal cord injury really high on his neck up near the brainstem, which caused him to stop breathing and I believe also caused a heart attack. And both of these obviously caused serious brain damage. So it was also noted that it was hard for first responders to establish an airway. He had abrasions around his left eye, probably from landing face first on that carpet. And he also had a series of small bruises or like abrasions down his back along where his spine was. So he's placed in a medically induced coma. Okay, that's a whole medical lexicon of injuries. But I guess they were expected in a severe fall like this. Do we know why he fell? Like, did he climb or did he slip? Okay, I guess you will tell me all of this in a second, am I right? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so let's talk about this for a moment. In a way, this is our first mystery. And first, let me describe the stairs to you. I will post photos so you can all see what I'm talking about. But if you're driving to work, don't get on your phone, so walk in the front door of the mansion there are stairs straight ahead and the wall is on the right and a banister is on the left of the stairs and as you're walking up there's then a very large landing so you would take a left walk along the landing with the railing on your left and then turn left again to continue going up the stairs hopefully that all makes sense and the way the stairs are built allows for a nice big dramatic entry chandelier there's carpet on everything and on the left side under where the second bit of stairs go up there's a bathroom underneath the stairs and so that's where Rebecca was and we'll post photos but hopefully this makes sense to you so there are a lot of theories as to how this accident happened was he running was he playing with a soccer ball was he riding his scooter on the top landing when he lost control and went over the railing which is what the police report suggested so remember Max had only turned six and he was a little under four feet tall he was 45 inches or a little over 114 centimeters and so his center of gravity was still well below that railing so it doesn't seem like he was tall enough to fall over. It's like, I don't know, it's like when you hear somebody fell off a cruise ship. It's like that almost never happens. More likely they were fooling around and lost their balance or someone threw them off. But if he was on his scooter, then why did the scooter end up on the floor with him? 
I don't know. I mean, this is one of the things people just don't really understand. So I don't understand how the scooter would go over with him, but apparently he'd been told not to ride the scooter in the halls before. And there was paint transfer from the railings uh, newel post, which was damaged onto the scooter. So they could see that it had definitely made contact. And Jonah did confirm that the damage on the newel post hadn't been there the day before. Yeah, okay, but with all that thick carpet, could he even have been going fast enough? I know, that carpet. So what if he was scooting down the hallway? It's a long hallway, and then the stairs would have been on his left. So what if he was scooting down that hallway, and as he approached the stairs on his left, the dog either distracted him and he wasn't paying attention, or maybe the dog was running up the stairs toward him, or you know, the dog bumped him and then his scooter went down the first stair or two of that staircase. And then both Max and the scooter flipped over the railing. I wonder if that would be possible. Like if they went down the first few stairs, could the whole thing have just flipped over and maybe the weight of the scooter, if he held onto it, flipped him right over that railing. And that's why this, you know, scooter was found on top of him. And actually that might be why the chandelier, because one of the things people say is that Max didn't have any injuries on his hands so he couldn't have grabbed onto the chandelier. But maybe the scooter hit the chandelier. Yeah, that's my best guess for what might have happened in that scenario. I mean, yeah, Weimarana are big dogs, especially next to a six-year-old, and they are really active and they're super goofy. And I think we both know how dogs love to appear in the most inconvenient places. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many times I kicked my dogs already by accident. I mean, really, like, kicked them in the face or last time I kicked <laughs> one off the bed because it just appeared behind me, yeah? Yeah. And then I always apologize because I feel so bad. So bad. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say, I guess, is it's definitely a possibility. Do you think he said ocean because ocean was the thing that caused the accident? Yeah, it's possible. But I'm not sure whether he actually said ocean or not, because I don't think Rebecca was lying about it. I just, I don't know. I suspect based on his injuries that he had that he wouldn't have been able to speak. And it's possible the noise she heard was just air escaping his vocal cords and it sort of sounded like ocean. But if it's possible, then yeah, I think that's what would have happened. I think he was playing on his scooter. The dog wanted in on the fun. It all went terribly wrong because you're right. Weimaraners are a lot like a lab. And if there's a kid playing in that house, you know that dog wants in on the fun. And this dog was still a puppy. He was 14 months old. So, you know, about the same age as Max. It's just sad. So Max's mother, Dina, she just couldn't believe this had happened. And she said that Max was not a daredevil. And I do understand what she means here. Some kids just are naturally more cautious and others, you know, seem like they're trying to kill themselves every five minutes. So, you know, there's those kids who will never break a bone, never need stitches. And then there are the kids whose parents are absolutely certain that social services will be called if they go to the ER. <laughs> One more time. Yeah. Yeah, please tell me about it. I was one of those quiet kids, you know, always reading and playing with my dolls. My younger sister, who listens to this show occasionally, so hello, Nina. Hi, Nina. She did the craziest stuff. For example, my parents once called her running around with an ex when she was <laughs> maybe five years old, Max. With an ex? Yes. Five. <laughs> well, that being said, even the most quiet kids can have a moment of pure recklessness. Yeah, I was the same. I was totally into dolls and books, and my sister was breaking her wrists skateboarding over speed bumps. My, I think my worst summer injury was, like, bleeding into my jelly shoes, you know, <laughs> 80s fashion. You could not get blood stains out of those clear plastic jelly shoes. 
But apparently, you know, Max was a very cautious kid who liked having his hand held if he was jumping on a trampoline. And I think that's why Dina thought something had maybe been done to him. Oh, did she think Rebecca intentionally hurt him? Yeah, and it's interesting because no, Dina didn't think Rebecca had hurt him. But there are a lot of people out there who think that Rebecca and or Zena had intentionally hurt Max and then maybe thrown him over the balcony to cover it up. And Dina believes that he might have been assaulted. Uh, I think she had come to the conclusion that some of his injuries looked like similar to if he had been suffocated. But uh, I've seen her say in a number of interviews that she doesn't think that Rebecca had anything to do with it. And she really does seem sincere. But you wonder, you know, had someone else come into the house and hurt Max, but who who would ever want to and why, you know? So I can't say that I believe this theory. I think, you know, she just is so desperate for a reason this happened. But the police didn't believe this theory either, and they ruled it an accident. Yeah, and freak accidents, they do happen. Yeah, they do. They happen all the time. Ultimately, the police ruled that he'd been running or riding his scooter on the second floor hallway when he somehow went over, uh, tried to grab the chandelier, which broke, and then he hit his back on the area around the landing before continuing his fall and landing on his head. I do have a diagram that the sheriff's department did that we will post. I mean, it's sad we will never know what happened, but everyone knows that with kids that age, even if you're watching them like a hawk, it only takes like five minutes for a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Summer is just starting here and there's already been so many stories about little children um, in pool accidents. We as adults know how risky certain behavior is, you know, but a kid that age, they can't even start to calculate that risk. So even a really cautious kid with vigilant supervision, you can get it fatally wrong very easily. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, it's sad. And I can't blame parents who start to be overprotective because kids are freaking fragile. Oh, God, yeah. It's just, yeah, constant worry. It's July 11th. Max has had this terrible accident that morning. And while cleaning up the broken glass from the chandelier, Zena cuts her leg. So a police officer takes her and Rebecca to a local urgent care. I think she got four stitches. Dina and Jonah are by Max's side in the hospital. And while Rebecca loves Max like her own, she's just doing everything she can to support Jonah and Dina during this just impossibly hard time. And at this point, they're all believing and hoping that Max will recover. Dina has a twin sister with the same name as your sister, Nina. Oh no, it's like smutty nose all over again. And also, please don't confuse her with my sister. <laughs> I won't. But, you know, honestly, rhyming sibling names are going to be my downfall in podcasting. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that my dad's neighbor, he has two kids. Well, he has three kids, but two of his kids, their names are Emanuel and Emanuela. And the best thing is they're not even twins. They have oh, like one no. year age difference. I always thought it's so unoriginal. Oh, no. Yeah, no, that's unfortunate. My dad is a twin, and um, some of my best friends are these guys who are also twins. And in both cases, they have the same initials, but not rhyming names, thank God. But listen, it's not Nina and Dina's fault that they have rhyming names. They're both lovely names. <laughs> and uh, they're fraternal twins, though. And they are very, very close. And as soon as Nina hears about her nephew's accident, she is on the next flight. Jonah asks Rebecca to pick Nina up from the airport, and she's happy to. And also a good friend of Jonah's, Dr. Howard Luber, arrives to support his friend. Can I just say, I think if I were a billionaire, I'd hire a car to pick my family up from the airport. But I just hate the airport. But I'm sure 
sure Rebecca was really happy to have ways to help. After she dropped Nina off at the hospital, Rebecca called Camp Diggity Dogs and asked them if they would please come and pick up her dog, Ocean. Because, of course, you know, things are really hectic right now. He'll be alone a lot, and there are investigators in and out of the house. I mention this because it shows me that Clearly, she's thinking clearly, and she's she's handling shit, you know? Jonah returns home briefly late that night when Max is having some testing done so that he can shower and grab some fresh clothes. He tried to stay at the Ronald McDonald house next to the hospital, but they were booked up, so he booked a night at a hotel just really close by. He just wanted to be by his son's side. Now, it is the next day, July 12th. And Ted Greenberg, the owner of the doggy daycare, arrives to pick up Ocean, and he reported that Becky was very calm and quiet, almost like someone was asleep in the house. She wasn't hysterical, quote, she asked me to keep the dog for a few days, so that's that's what he said about his meeting with her. And I think it is worth mentioning that Rebecca apparently was a really calming presence. I think Anne Rule talks about how Jonah's first two marriages were very volatile and how Becky is just a very healthy, calm, and sort of zen person. Now it seems like she's just doing everything she can to support Jonah and Dina while they're keeping their vigil at the hospital. And she really did seem convinced that Max would be okay, as did his parents. Everybody was just waiting for those test results. Yeah, of course, parents always hope for the best. Plus, they could clearly get Max the best medical aid that is available. Oh, absolutely. So Rebecca wisely decides this is not the best time for her little sister to be visiting. Everything is just in chaos mode. So she brings her to the airport, promising that when Max is better, she'll have her come back for a, for a long proper visit. Zena then flies back home to Missouri, where she's going to be met by their sister, Mary. Becky then picks up Jonah's brother, Adam. He's a tugboat captain who's flown in from Memphis. Their dad called him, and so as soon as he heard, he flies in to support his brother, and she drives him to the hospital to sit with Jonah. Ay, so many names, and I'm trying to keep them all <laughs> in my overheated brain because we were having a heat wave here in Austria. Okay, so Rebecca was not really around in a hospital. I can understand it. I think I would feel so bad and guilty. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was not her fault. But did Dina not want Rebecca there, or did Rebecca not want to be there? So... It looks like Rebecca did go to the hospital at least a couple of times to be with Max when Dina wasn't there. So like if Dina was home sleeping for a few hours, I think then Rebecca would pop in. I don't think Dina ever asked her not to be there, but I think Rebecca was just trying to be, you know, respectful and supportive. That evening, Rebecca and Jonah, Jonah's brother Adam and Jonah's friend, they go out for a quick dinner. And then when that's over, Rebecca drops Jonah off at the hospital and she heads back to the mansion with Jonah's brother Adam. Adam and Rebecca get back to the mansion and Adam is going to stay in the guest house where he always stays when he comes to visit. And that night, Rebecca will be alone in the main house. We have some of the messages on her phone from that night. 7.51 p.m., Rebecca texts her boyfriend, Jonah, and says, quote, Hi, babe. Left you Max's little monkey at the main lobby. Thought you might want to keep it in your pocket. I love you so much, babe, and Max will make it through. Know that both of you are in my heart constantly. At 7.53, so two minutes later, Jonah types back, Thanks, baby. And that's the last time they communicate. Rebecca has been keeping her sister Mary updated on everything, and so they've been texting and going back and forth, and Mary had asked if Becky had seen Max, and how was he doing, and was he on a ventilator, and so there's a text at 9.42 that evening from Rebecca to Mary, and it says, quote, I can't believe this. It's a nightmare, and partially it's hard for me because I love him like my own, but he is not, and I just need to be strong for Jonah. 
Rebecca then talked to her sister Mary on the phone that night. Mary said that Rebecca was upset but not distraught, and she felt like it was a really terrible accident, but she wasn't really beating herself up over it, you know? She was just focused on helping Joan and get through this. They talked about how their dad's 80th birthday was coming up, and they agreed that they should definitely throw a party for him. And Becky also told Mary to let their mom know that she was going to call her in the morning on her way to the hospital so that they could plan a visit that fall. She also said she had to be up early because she wanted to bring breakfast and fresh clothing to Jonah, uh, and she was going to be up around five in the morning to do that. So this is the last time they spoke. Mary's last contact with Rebecca was 9.50 p.m. on July 12th. At 10.48 p.m., Rebecca receives a text message from Nina Romano, that's Dina's twin sister, saying that Nina wanted to come by the Spreckles mansion and talk to Rebecca about Max's fall. Rebecca did not respond to this text. She might have been sleeping. Yeah, but a lot of the things you read say that she dodged Nina because Nina did decide to walk over and knock on the door. She said she just wanted to see where the accident happened. She couldn't understand how Max was in such bad shape, and so she just wanted to see where everything happened to see if she could understand it. She said that there was a light on upstairs, but despite her repeated knocking, no one answered the door. So she looked over the courtyard gate, saw no one, gave up, and walked the five minutes back to Dina's house and went to bed. So I did don't know though if Rebecca like you said could have just been sleeping but also I probably wouldn't have answered a door at that hour if I were home alone and my dog wasn't with me mm. you know what I mean yeah, yeah. At 12.50 a.m. on July 13th, cell phone records show that Rebecca's phone accessed her voicemail. She listened to a voicemail message and then deleted it. Do we know what it was? Yes and no. So the voicemail is allegedly a message left for Rebecca by Jonah informing her that Max's condition was unfortunately worsening and they just learned that Max was not expected to survive. If he did, he would never walk or speak again. This voicemail, though, was not able to be retrieved by police investigators. Jonah has testified, though, that that's the message he left. Okay, am I the only one finding it weird that she deleted this message immediately after listening to it? I mean, okay, I'm like a message and mail hoarder, so quite possibly I need help. <laughs> no, I'm the same way. I'm the same. And I hadn't actually thought of that. That'd be interesting to find out. Did she delete everything right away, or is this a clue? That's one question I now have. How many saved messages were there? <laughs> On the morning of July 13th, Adam allegedly wakes up, watches a little porn on his phone, <laughs> as you do, and then he heads over to the main house to get some coffee. So in the Anne Rule book, she makes a point of the fact that they never locked the back door of the house. But Adam is heading over to that back door in search of coffee when he discovers Rebecca hanging from the balcony, a noose around her neck. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, hold on. <laughs> that kind of came out of nowhere, so she hung herself from the balcony. At the back of the house. Do I understand correctly? You do. Yes. She is hanging, but she's not just hanging. Her hands are tied behind her back. Her feet are also bound. She has a blue long sleeve shirt wrapped around her neck. The sleeves are knotted and stuffed into her mouth and kind of down her throat as a gag. The noose around her neck is tied over her hair and she is completely naked. What? Mm -hmm. Okay, so she very clearly didn't commit suicide. Adam must have been in shock. Did he call 911 immediately? He does. He calls 911 at 6.48 a.m. And we're actually going to listen to the call. Emergency, what are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house of uh, the 
it's on Ocean Boulevard across from the hotel. Same place that you came and got the kid yesterday. Okay, sir, what is the address? I'm not sure. Uh, 19, I mean, the back house is 1928-something. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me call you back. Okay, sir, is she yeah. still alive? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Okay, hold on. So, what's, what's your name? Adam Shackner. 
Okay, I have help on the way. What's your cell phone number? Is it 901 Okay, listen to me. Help is coming right now, okay? And Petey, you're on the way? Yes, we are. Okay, and you're right there with her. Did you cut her down? Yes, I did. Okay, just stay with me. Okay, so that's the 911 call. Got a lady hung herself. This sounds like he's telling them what he wants them to believe. You know what it reminds me of? Like when Patsy Ramsey called and said, we have a kidnapping. Yes, exactly. Yes. And also the fact that he says, I got a lady. I mean, Adam knew who Rebecca was. She'd been with his brother for a few years and Jonah was apparently planning to propose. So I can't think there's any way that you don't know your brother's girlfriend's name. And let's just say for argument's sake, he didn't know her name. He's in shock and he forgets it. Why wouldn't he have said my brother's girlfriend? is hanging or you know something like this why wouldn't you mention the fact that she's naked and that her hands and feet are bound yeah i know i just don't know why why wouldn't you say my brother's girlfriend's all tied up naked and hanging from the balcony you know because that's the situation it's not i've got a girl hung herself it's just odd and a lot of people think that he's just distancing himself like i don't know this person hanging in front of me i have no part of this situation i'm an outsider but then he also says you got the kid. He doesn't say my nephew. So maybe, do you think it's possible that's just how he talks? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I kind of get it. And he also says he just woke up. Did he really? So he's just foggy or he's trying to give himself an alibi. Because I said the weirdest stuff already when I was just waking up. Yeah, all the shows that I've seen on this kind of mention that. He also sounds super annoyed, which I would maybe be too after you listen to that 911 call, because let's say he has nothing to do with any of this and he yeah. just finds her body. And then I get why he's frustrated trying to get her help and the woman on 911. I don't know. She's not directing him in ways to help her. She's not reminding them that they need an address. She's just quiet. She she does a horrible job, actually. Yeah. And then they transfer and they immediately ask for the address again. Is it also strange when he yells, are you alive? Yeah, that seems very weird to me. So it's like, I don't know. I, but like, I would understand if somebody yelled, stay with me, you know, don't do this to me, you know, yeah. or please don't let this be happening. But like, he's just like, are you alive? Like, <laughs> Okay. It, it's it's bizarre. It really is. Um, and when you see 911 experts talk about this on all the documentary shows, they all think it's bizarre. But on the other hand, and I might be playing devil's advocate now, I don't know. I don't know how I would react in the situation. I don't know how I would sound in a 911 call. We all can just imagine these things that, you know, we, we imagine acting the way we know ourselves to act on a daily basis. But I was never in a very horrible situation where I had to call 911. I mean, I really only can hope that I would react properly, but I don't really know. No, that's a really excellent point because it's so hard listening to these calls, especially if you're into true crime. I know a lot of people never listen to 911 calls. But just going from my gut, when I heard the 911 call from Max's accident, it just caused a really like a visceral gut reaction with me. But this one, it's not so much. But as you know, to be fair, I have not been able to find an unedited, uncut version of the 911 call that Xena made. So that's why we can't play that for you. And I don't know anything about Adam Shackney. Maybe he is just kind of a lovable curmudgeon who just always sounds vaguely <laughs> pissed off and disinterested. He could have resting creep voice. Like, it's a thing. It's totally possible. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
So hmm. back to Jonah's brother, Adam. So he's on the phone with 911, runs to the house, gets a knife from the kitchen, and he grabs a table and puts it under Rebecca, climbs on top of it, and starts sawing through this ski rope, which is what she's hanging from. But this table only has three legs. I will say it's possible from the photos I've seen that it could have broken while he was on it, but if that happened, I can't imagine he wouldn't have fallen. So Rebecca weighed 100 pounds, and I just... I don't know, it's hard for me to see any way in which he's standing on a three-legged table, holding onto her body, sawing through a rope, and then lowering her onto the ground, and he doesn't fall off. Also, how was he holding a phone, holding a knife, and holding Rebecca's body? I can't believe he could have held the phone with his chin to his shoulder and done that. I don't know, unless, do you think he put it down and that's all the silence? Um, I'm pretty sure he could have put it down. And then, yeah. you know, when he comes back and he says hello to the operator again, it's yeah. like, yeah, it sounds like he picked it up there. Yeah, it could be. I've also read both ways that he cut her down, then called 911, or that he cut her down as he was on the phone with 911. So I'm not 100% sure which way it was. I did see a clip of Mary on TV program, and she pointed out that he says he's doing chest compressions, and you can hear him completely clearly when he says that, which you wouldn't if he was actually doing chest compressions. Um, Or, you know what, maybe he's one of those people who always have their headset on. I mean, they do exist. Oh, they do. So maybe. <laughs> but I feel like they would have mentioned that. But it's it's certainly possible. And that's a really good point I didn't think of. Either way, he gets her on the ground. He says he's doing CPR. And eventually the police arrive. And they can immediately tell that she has been dead for a while. Rigor mortis is starting to set in. They call the medical examiner and close off the scene because things look a bit hinky. Eh, just a bit. <laughs> yeah. After calling 911, Adam lets his brother know that Rebecca has hanged herself. I saw an interview with Dina where she says that Jonah looked absolutely stricken and he said to her, I need to leave for a little while. And she said, you know, where on earth could you need to go? Our son is dying. And he told her that he had just learned that Rebecca had killed herself. And Dina was just like, oh my God, why? Why would she do that? And apparently Jonah responded, Asian honor. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Adam Shacknai, having found the body, of course, he spoke with detectives at the Coronado Police Department. The interview was taped with Adam's permission, and Adam recounted his version of the events over the past 24 hours. Adam also agreed to take a polygraph test. Um, of course, the police would do that. He must have been one of the main suspects, as long as they didn't conclude that it was indeed suicide. So what did the polygraph show? Well, the polygraph examiner determined that the results were inconclusive. I'll post a link to the video so you can actually see most of the interview and the uh, polygraph, but basically everything was inconclusive. <sighs> of course. Yeah. I guess this is the point where I should tell you that there are two main avenues of thought in regards to Rebecca's death. The first is that Rebecca was distraught over Max taking a turn for the worse. She would have felt at least partly responsible, of course, and maybe her cultural background, Asian honor came into play and pushed her to take her own life. The other main theory is that she was murdered and it was staged to look like a suicide. And I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of people in that camp believe Adam Shacknai is responsible. The Asian honor code is indeed very strong. 
But then again, would it really come into play here over an accident that was not her fault? And about staging a suicide, I mean, if so, they did hell of a bad job, to be Mm -hmm. frank. I mean, bind her feet and her hand, gag her, it's all just really weird. It's so very, really weird. Yeah. I mean, it was her fault in the sense that it happened on her watch. Bad things happen when responsible people are in charge every day and accidents happen. But let's go back to the mansion that morning and let's talk about what else they found at the scene. So as they walk down the hallway toward the room with the balcony that Rebecca was found hanging from, the first thing they probably noticed was a message painted in black paint on the door. And the police refer to this initially as her suicide note on the door painted in blocky black letters a message reads quote she saved him can you save her end quote and that i think is a good place to stop for today are you really gonna leave us hanging here now I know, but you know what? There is so much more to cover that we haven't even begun to talk about yet. Unfortunately, I think this is probably a good place to stop for today. All right, all right. But please, please tell me something. Tell me something good. Okay. I mentioned in the beginning the Soden House. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the name George Hotel, but you are probably familiar with the Black Dahlia. And there is a TV show now called I Am the Night. It is about George Hotel and that maybe or maybe not he had something to do with the Black Dahlia case. And it is highly fascinating. It is with one of the Hollywood Chrises. He plays the main character or one of the main characters. <laughs> Chris Pine, yes. Yeah, that Chris, not the other Chris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can highly recommend it. And there's also a podcast from the grandchildren of George Hotel. It's called Root of Evil. Yeah. I haven't gone through it completely so far, but it's also really, really good. So I finished it. that one and it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's a crazy story. I mean, I have to say that I didn't care much for the last episode of the show, but it was still good. It was good. It was. I had to explain a lot to my husband when we were watching it. Probably better if you know a lot about the Black Dahlia murder. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know anything about it, then it's a little, it could be a little confusing, I think. But yeah, I agree. Those were both really good. I like the house. It's like old at stake. For me, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous house. Beautiful. It is a beautiful house, but it's also creepy as fuck. (laughs) It's so creepy. It looks like people are sacrificed in that courtyard. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It really... I say with a smile on my face. (laughs) (laughs) She wants the sacrifice house. Yeah, well, my Something Good This Week is also going to be about houses, but it's a show on Netflix that I discovered a little while ago. And when you need a break from the murdery, it's called Escape to the Country, and it's a collection of a British show. It's kind of like House Hunters in America, except it's people who live in like cities in England who want to move to the countryside of England. And they have all different budgets anywhere from from like a couple hundred thousand pounds to I think some of them are over a million pound properties. You know, they'll talk about a county and they'll talk about some history and stuff that happens there. And then you see these, what I love to just see what you can get for your money around the world for houses. So mm-hmm. if you also enjoy that, look for Escape to the Country on Netflix. And the people who are in it are a lot more tolerable than the people that appear on House Hunters in the United States because they're they're always like, oh, I weave 
alpaca tapestries and he's like I paint artisanal eggs and our budget is <laughs> 1.5 million you know what I mean like anyway it's good stuff it's good stuff thanks so much for listening and please take a moment to review and subscribe that really does help us out quite a bit we also talked quite a bit today about suicide we want to be sure that if you need help you know that you're not alone the number for the national suicide prevention lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK that's 1-800-273-8255 and in austria you can dial 142 to reach the telefon seelsorge and they are there 24 7 and if you are in another country you can check under www.iasp info and there you find a list of all crisis hotlines for 77 countries yeah we'll post a link to more resources on our pages because we don't want anybody to uh, have this be a problem so please if you are going through hell keep going bye tschüss we'll